Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Our favorite Catholic or former Democratic president is on the line today, and he's here to tell us to leave religion at the door. Well, not exactly, but Frank Beckwith does help us discern the Christian's place at the picket line. Okay, so I'm super excited to introduce our very special guest today. Uh, We have the honor of having with us um, William Clinton, the professor of philosophy and church-state studies at Baylor University. Mr. Clinton, how are you? Well, thanks for thanks for introducing me. That was a bit kind to you. Do uh, you happen to be doing anything after the show? <laughs> Perhaps I should uh, reveal your true identity now. At this point, I'm, um, I'm looking for I'm looking for an intern. <laughs> Catholic Francis Beckwith to talk about his latest book, Taking Right Seriously, Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith. Thanks for being with us, Frank. Great to, great to be here. Thank you. I said Bill away, by the way. So. Good, good. That's a good thing. <laughs> well, um, Carl has described you. We got to have lunch with, with Frank in, in Atlanta when we were there for ETS, and, and Carl described you as sophisticated common sense. And I just thought that really stuck with me because I thought that is a great way to describe you. And that's what I really thought about when I was listening to your arguments in this book, you were giving a talk about it. And I thought this is sophisticated common sense. What, what, what reasons do you have behind writing this book? Well, it's, it's actually many years in the making. I began uh, thinking about the issues in the book, which, which deal with, uh, questions about how the law and politics relate to citizens who are observant religious believers. But I began thinking about the issues probably 2006, 2007. I had uh, published an article in the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly about how I think uh, courts make the mistake of assessing statutes by looking at the motivations of those that supported it if it's a statute that happens to be favorable toward the ideas held by religious citizens. So uh, it seemed to me that to be a crazy way to evaluate a statute. I mean, after all, uh, statutes are written in a way to advance a particular purpose, right? And if the purpose happens to be one that even people that uh, are not religious or Christian in particular can understand and appreciate and support. It seems odd to say that somehow if the citizens are motivated by the religion, somehow that invalidates the statute. And it, it allowed me in that article to actually make some really important distinctions that are usually lost on judges and legal scholars. And that was my background in philosophy was very helpful there. And then about a year and a half later, I spent a year at Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, uh, doing some of the initial work. On the on this on this book, going into several different issues, but it's it, it seemed to me as I began reading more and more, uh, especially legal scholarship, how legal scholars and many judges and justices just simply do not understand the nature of religious belief. And I would 
also add that I think some religious believers don't even understand the nature yeah. of their own beliefs. Yeah. And, and so it, it, this book allowed me to delve into certain questions that I had written on before, but never really from uh, the perspective of, of assessing how courts and, 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 and legislators deal with these questions. And there's actually a moment that it goes back to 2004 that I opened the book with. Uh, it's a, uh, where I kind of, crisp, it was the beginning of, of, in my mind, these issues being relevant to my kind of academic project. And I was speaking at the university, excuse me, Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas. Lubbock, by the way, is, is people from the moon go there and say, <laughs> what, a, what a wasteland. <laughs> <laughs> It's there's, it's my little Texas Tech knock, yes. But uh, in any event, I was there, and I was there speaking on the issue of of Darwinism, public education, and some of the legal questions that arise from you know debates about evolution. And and my own view is that I, I'm actually not that uptight about evolution, maybe like some other Christians are. But I think as a, as an issue concerning the law and politics, I think it's a very interesting question about those that reject some aspects of Darwinism who happen to be Christians but offer what I think are non-religious reasons why they think it's problematic. I think there's, in terms of living in a liberal democracy, that should be a perfectly acceptable way to engage uh, your disagreement with public school curricula. So after my lecture, though, there's a gentleman in the audience from one of the science departments who was apparently alerted that I was going to be there, and he was sitting next to a friend from the ACLU, and they were prepared to pepper me with questions. And the first question from, from the gentleman wasn't really a question. It was an assertion. He said, all you've given us so far is religious arguments. Hmm. And I paused for a moment, and I said, wow, I'm relieved. I thought you were going to say they were bad arguments. <laughs> and that, at that moment, I realized that actually just using the adjective religious right. somehow does all this work for people. Yeah. And I just thought that's kind of weird. I mean, people are actually giving you arguments and all you do is simply say, oh, it's religious conversation over. Therefore, there's no rationality to your argument whatsoever. Exactly. So that's the kind of history of, of, of how I began working on the book. And it took me about seven years. In the interim, I, I've written up many other things, but I uh, what I did is that as I wrote each chapter, I would send it off to a journal to be published, and then I would get feedback and criticism. And so the book is a kind of uh, completion of what began as law review articles and, you know, hopefully responding adequately to my critics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that struck me about the book, Frank, uh, really page, it's on page 17, I think you offer these Two quotations, one from Justice Anthony Kennedy and the other one from Justice Antonin Scalia. I'm going to read them uh, and, and ask you to comment, but it seems to me they capture so much of the, the problematic nature of the debate about religion in the public square in the United States at the moment. Um, Kennedy says this, it's in a, in a case of Lee versus Weisman, uh, 1992. You quote Kennedy as saying, quotes, the design of the Constitution is that preservation and transmission of religious beliefs and worship is a responsibility and a choice committed to the private sphere 
which itself is promised freedom to pursue that mission, end quotation. Then you quote from the the dissent of of Antonin Scalia, uh, I quote, Church and state would not be such a difficult subject if religion were, as the court apparently thinks it to be, some purely personal avocation that can be indulged entirely in secret, like pornography, in the privacy of one's room. For most believers, it is not that and has never been, end quotation. Would you like to comment on that? It seems to me that that goes to the very heart of, of many of the problems we now see in debates about religious freedom in the United States. That's right. Uh, you find in Kennedy a, a view that, uh, you know, to, to a certain extent is part of a dominant stream in uh, the history of American jurisprudence, even going back to the founders. The founders themselves, there were divisions about the relationship between uh, religion and the law and politics. So, for example, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson once said that, uh, you know, as long he doesn't care what somebody believes as long as he doesn't pickpocket him. <laughs> and, and, and that's the kind of Kennedy position, you know, this kind of enlightenment view that religion is purely private uh, and that it's, uh, you know, it's something that you can do with other people, but it's has should have nothing to do with the public square per se. Uh, on the other hand, you have in Scalia's comments representing another stream of thought, which some scholars call a kind of the providential stream of thought. You find it in people like maybe John Adams, George Washington, and some of the other founders that saw that the state uh, is different from the church as an institution, but that religious ideas, uh, in fact, uh, play a positive role in the formation of people's character. And that, of course, has a positive role in the, the wider uh, public in terms of the sort of society that we're going to live in. And so in, in, for Scalia uh, and for those in the sort of the providential tradition, they tend to see uh, religion not only as generally positive, but you can't sort of cabinet. You know, it's the other day when I was uh, I gave a talk at the University of Colorado and I was talking about some of these cases involving uh, certain businesses that refuse to cooperate with um, same-sex weddings. And one of the students in the class where I lectured asked me, she, she said, look, uh, you know, what if the, you know, it's all, it's just the business doing it, not the individual. So, and, and, I, and I said to her, I said, well, imagine this, imagine it wasn't a mom and pop let's say if it was a photographer, a photography firm, it was, let's say, a major corporation like Kodak. And they asked one of their photographers uh, in their stable of, uh, of workers to photograph a, a gay wedding. And it happened to be that the photographer it was a devout believer uh, who didn't believe that gay weddings were really weddings and that it was a mockery of their sacramental tradition. Uh, what do you think Kodak should do? Should they coerce the person? And if they tried to, wouldn't that violate that person's First Amendment free exercise rights? That is, now you would have a case of religious discrimination against the religious believer. So how does that, you don't really resolve it. But what you found in, I mean, you found in that question was an interesting, sort of like, you can sort of be this private person, but when you go to work, you kind of have to pretend that's false. And that just seems really weird. We don't... And, and it was interesting. The student actually said, "I never thought about it that way." And and it's I think this is a common way of people that pe- people think is you can sort of leave your religion at home. You can, you know, you can you have to sit in the back of the secular bus, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you right. kind of even um, talk about how 
because our religions have morality involved in them, then we can't make valid truth claims. That's right. So you find um, the example I use in uh, which I forget what chapter it is in my book. It's uh, I think chapter five where I talk about um, uh, no chapter. Yeah. Chapter five. When I talk about uh, issues concerning early beginning of life questions like abortion and stem cell research. And uh, there's an interesting um, uh, comment by a, a professor from Cornell. Um, I think Sherry. I think Sherry Colby is her name. If I if I'm getting it right, she she says, "Look, uh, it you know people disagree about uh, when 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 the fetus or the embryo becomes in soul, but that's a purely religious question. <laughs> uh, but when it comes to secular issues, this has nothing. It should have nothing to do with it. And what she's doing, and and as what I say in the book is she's trying to take. Uh, really two answers to one question. That is, the question is, who and what are we and can we know it? Is the fetus one of us? That's the question. And she's trying to turn it into two subjects, religion and science, or religion and secularism. And this happens often in a lot of these issues. People will not look at the quote-unquote religious answer as an answer to the same question, but they'll, they'll look at it as an entirely different subject. Right. And it's then set in opposition to reason. That's right. So you find this like even and I talk about this case in the book as well, the Hobby Lobby case. If you think about it, if if you're a secularist and you hear Hobby Lobby, uh, the Green family making the claim that this violates their deeply held religious beliefs, what you do, I think, intellectually is this. You say, oh, they're opposed to something that's part of medicine. Mm-hmm. Medicine is part of science. Science is grounded in reason. Yeah. They're appealing to faith. So therefore, this is a conflict between faith and reason. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's how that's how people look at this. And so, but for someone like me and others who, you know, share m- my view on on the nature of of the unborn, I think, well, wait a second. This is actually this isn't faith versus reason. It's actually two different understandings of reason. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, but they don't see it that way. And that's actually one of the reasons why I wrote the book to kind of get people to readjust their, you know, their epistemic expectations. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful in, in those, in those categories. And I wonder as, as I was, th- as I'm sitting here thinking about uh, the quote from, uh, from, from justice Kennedy and, and from what you shared, uh, even going back to Jefferson, it seems that the that the error they make is that um, the the position of the United States ought to be that uh, that the government you know merely tolerates uh, religion. Um, would would you see that as as fundamentally problematic to put it in those terms? Because I've heard it explained in those terms in the mainstream media that 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 our, our government quote you know tolerates religion, but it's more than that, isn't it? That, that's right. Uh, I mean, religion is specifically mentioned in the Constitution, right? I mean, it's actually right. mentioned three times. It's or actually twice, but there's once in the Article Six, which forbids uh, any religious test for federal office, and the other is in the First Amendment, where it, where it mentions both the free exercise and the the dis- disestablishment of religion. It's clear that the founders believed that religion was really, really, really important. Uh, other things aren't mentioned. Uh, and the fact that they're not mentioned doesn't mean they're not important, but we should 
take seriously when something is mentioned. And I, I, I think today there's there's a, obviously a huge division in America over that. But there are most secularist and most you know people in the media hold this view of toleration. But yeah. if you look at American history, uh, there's always been a kind of tension between those that think that um, uh, it's just mere toleration and those that in fact, hold a much more robust view. So you have, in the case of uh, of, of Justice Scalia, uh, from the from the example mentioned earlier, uh, a, a, a richer view that that religion isn't just merely what people do in private, uh, but something that actually has an effect upon the public good. And so, in fact, religious citizens build institutions like schools and hospitals and orphanages and so forth. Uh, that view has its roots in people like George Washington, John Adams, and uh, many other of the founders. On the other hand, you have the Kennedy position, which does perceive, perceive religion as purely private or largely private. And you get uh, that sort of in the Jeffersonian, or what is sometimes called the Enlightenment part of the American founding. And you read, for example, in people like Jefferson comments, Jefferson made this comment himself that that I don't care what somebody believes. I don't care how many gods he believes in as long as he doesn't pick my pocket. You know, so you find both these strands in in, in American jurisprudence, uh, you know, and always it's interesting that throughout history, no, no, none, neither side's a clear winner. Right. So so one of the, the great things I tell this to my students when I teach law and religion in the U.S., one of the great things about American jurisprudence on religion is that it is, in fact, a mess. <laughs> and, 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 and the mess is not a bad thing because you've always had this the, the providential strand, which is represented by the Scalia, John Adams, George Washington, and then the Jeffersonian Enlightenment strand, which uh, is kind of represented today by people like Kennedy and others. And they've always been at war, but no one's. There's never been a clear winner, mm-hmm. and whenever the and because there's never been a clear winner, it kind of keeps both sides a little honest. Mm-hmm. And but now I, I have the sense that maybe the Enlightenment side is coming close to victory, right. and that I think is not good for the country. And on the other hand, I you know, and this people may doubt my sincerity here, but I'm not sure that the providential side totally winning would be a good thing either. Mm-hmm. You know, um, do you really want to live in a country where, you know, Mike Huckabee opens up the day with prayer? You know, (laughs) I don't know if that's a really good example. And and Donald Trump closes each evening in prayer. (laughs) That's right. So, I mean, so, I mean, there's there's a point here that that I'm making is that that tension has always been there. And I I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it actually has made us better because it forces – let's say, deeply observant religious believers to actually try to understand the Enlightenment side and also has forced the Enlightenment side to be much more congenial to the providential side. And that's a healthy thing. But now I think in light of recent Supreme Court opinions, I think the Enlightenment side is getting kind of giddy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. They're on the verge of sort of total victory. And I think that's not good. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, Frank. I'm, I'm a part of a denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, uh, that uh, has a conservative, if you like, uh, position on homosexuality, the biblical position, we would call it. Um, however, a recent survey was taken, and I think it's about 37, maybe 38 percent of members of PCA churches um, 
uh, approve of same-sex marriage, not because they don't think that homosexuality is no longer a sin, but because of this separation. Yes. Um, and, and what would you say to um, someone in the PCA, for instance, who, who says, well, yes, personally, you know, and I see in the Bible, um, I, I believe that homosexuality is a, is a sin, but I don't see the problem uh, with same-sex marriage. How would you explain that yeah. to them for, for, from a religious freedom standpoint? Yeah, and I, I think one reason for that move is that the person that makes that move, it's intellectually liberating in the sense that you no longer have to deal with uh, people saying to you that you're a bigot, right? Right. So there's that that part. So there's a sense you can be intellectually, in their minds, intellectually consistent. You can say, I still believe this biblically, yeah. but on the other hand, I'm not forcing my views on others, so therefore I'm relieved of the burden of all the insults and the marginalization. But the problem has to do with the nature of the question we're dealing with, marriage. Uh, It's a different kind of question than, let's say, pure religious liberty. So, yeah, you can have, like, like, you and I may have different views on the nature of baptism, Mm -hmm. right? Or we may have different views on the nature of communion. And that, that, we can live with that. That, There's, because those occur... The state doesn't have an right. interest in any of those, but with marriage, the state does because there's so many, so many things connected to marriage. First off, there's child custody questions. There's questions of the relationship between parents and children. Uh, a question I raised to my students on this to get them to think about it. I asked them how they know who their parents are, hmm. and they laugh and they go, "Well, you know, they these two people sired me, you know, this, <laughs> you know, or." And that's a sort of a biological argument. I said, well, well, wait a second. How is that different from racism? Because after all, you're saying that these people have a special obligation to you because of genetics. Hmm. Why is that relevant? Isn't that discrimin- Isn't that insulting to people that, let's say, uh, a gay couple that adopts children? Aren't you saying that somehow that sort of relationship is inferior? Wow. Yeah. And, and they, they, they get all kind of nervous, right? And and, the, and I explained to them well the reason why we we held this we've held this view forever about parents and children is not because we think of our sexual powers as purely biological, mm-hmm. but that there's a certain teleology to those right. powers that, and that teleology says that 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 the end of those powers or the purpose of those powers is in fact a good mm-hmm. that it's not simply something that is good because we desire it it's good because it is in fact intrinsically good to bring new human beings into existence and that there's a special responsibility connected to that teleology. Now, they've never thought that way before because there's a reductionist mentality, right? right? These are just our, and so that's why institutions like marriage and our understanding of family arose to begin with, to account for, to accommodate that reality of human beings. But the current environment says that reality is just a fiction and that we're supposed to debunk it. So now with the debunking full in play, fully in place, uh, what does, let's say, your Presbyterian friend say to a government worker who comes to your home, and this is a future that I think is more than just probable, let's say 20 years from now, and says, uh, your, your children have told their friends at school that you teach them that homosexuality is immoral. That is a hateful way of instructing your children. In fact, we consider it abuse under our laws and we will now take your children from you because you are abusing them by teaching them vile and evil lessons at home. You can't escape this. That's my point. Yeah. You simply, yeah. there is no way. 
because once the premises are in place, they have a certain logic of their own. And that's where we're heading. And I, you know, I, I say this guy, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracy guy and I don't like alarmist thinking, but if you had told me 10 years ago that people that wanted to be foster parents would be denied, would be denied foster children simply because they harbor the belief that sexuality uh, is tightly tethered to an intrinsic purpose, I would think you're crazy. Right. And now that's exactly where we're at, at least in the UK. Uh, and I don't think that's far away from happening here in the United States. And, it, and it, it, it'll move from foster parents being denied foster children to prospective adoptee parents being denied adoption. And then it will move to parents who have children naturally being those children being taken away. I have, exactly. I, I, and that's the logic of it. You yep. can't, and this is because the nature of the question, I do understand why these Presbyterians or other, you know, serious religious believers who think homosexual conduct is immoral would take this route because it does relieve you of this, you know, burden. But it, it, at the end of the day, you have to understand the logic of the position. That's good. Yeah, that's a very sobering note to bring bring the discussion to a close on, Frank. Um, yeah, these are very interesting times in which we live, and I think it it behooves Christians to be as as thoughtfully engaged with these issues as possible. And so, I'm going to end the program with another plug for Frank's book. It's uh, Francis J. Beck with "Taking Right Seriously: Law, Politics, and the Reasonableness of Faith." It's a Cambridge University Press book. It's a scholarly book. It's not a it's not an easy read from the perspective of, you know, you can't, you're not going to be able to read it while you're lying on the beach with kids playing around you. But it's a very well, it's a very worthwhile read. Um, chapters in here on rationality, on abortion. My favorite chapter in the book, actually, Frank, was chapter four, uh, Dignity Never Been Photographed, oh. Bioethics, Policy and Stephen Pinker's Materialism. Mm. Um, it's a shame we never got around to talk about that. Any chapter that starts with a quotation from Bob Dylan and, <laughs> and Benedict Sixteenth has to be worth reading. Well, you, you uh, know, I think virtually every one of my books is a Bob Dylan quote. I, I bet you so, can do Bob I'm Dylan impersonation really well. And I see Bob. you have a chapter in Bob Dylan and philosophy as well, which sits on my bookshelf at home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, the title of that chapter is called Busy Being Born Again. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, we recommend all people listening get hold of this book read it it's 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 a it's a tough read but it's well worth it uh it's worthwhile studying taking notes on it reflecting on what frank has to say because these are issues that as he pointed out in his answer to the final question these are issues that are coming soon to a neighborhood near you and it will it will help you if you're aware of where these new social behaviors and policies come from and how to address them in a thoughtful uh, Christian manner. So thanks very much for joining us, uh, Frank. It's a pleasure as always to, to engage you and have you on the program. Um, thanks also to those who've listened to us today. Uh, please visit our website and uh, we hope to speak to you again next time. Thanks very much. And if your breath to you is worth saving, then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone for the time. They are a change. 
Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, a coalition of pastors, scholars, and churchmen that exists to foster a reformed awakening in today's church. To further today's conversation, we're offering a message, The Sovereignty of God in Politics, at our podcast page at mortificationofspin.org. The message was given by Dave Chansky at the 2009 New Jersey Pastors and Lay Leaders Conference. We hope you'll find it helpful. Join us next week for this riveting discussion. We all three have been talking a little bit about uh, a blog post that created quite a stir this past week out of the Gospel Coalition. Tabidi Aniabwili brought in a, a guest writer for his blog, a member of his church, who comes right out and says in the title of the, of the post itself, uh, evangelical leaders tell us to vote for Hillary. Well, that's like throwing red meat out. That's next time. And please visit mortificationofspin.org to find posts from Amy, Carl, and Todd and to listen to The Sovereignty of God and Politics. We'll talk to you next week. Yeah, I discovered that you are very good at impersonations. Uh, like, uh, let me see. Let me try to do, um, well, the, 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 like, you mean like the, the Jimmy Stewart? <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's why. Lots of the moon down <laughs> We also heard Bill Clinton, which that's had right. us particularly interested. I feel your pain, I do. <laughs> that's really good. Do your McLaughlin group form, because I didn't get to play that one. Oh, here's your one. Yeah. Um, what's it? Is, uh, what is it? Oh, oh on, a metaf- on a scale of one to ten, ten being metaphysical certitude. That's not very good. But, uh, <laughs> Jack Tormond. Really you did it really good in your uh, presentation. Yeah, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. <laughs>